Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, sure is good to be, uh, to be back on the pulpit more regularly, and uh, I've enjoyed a little time away, but this is what I love most, is being here with our church. And after a week like this, having seen the Cubs win the World Series, I'm really not sure if I need to keep preaching on the topic of prayer. Uh, I've got... You know, two sermons left in the series, but uh, I don't know. I mean, that was one of the craziest things that I've ever seen. I'm not even a diehard baseball fan, but I'll tell you, that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And I don't know what we're going to use as an illustration of, like, I guess we have to go back to the, the phrase, when pigs fly, because when the Cubs win the series is now done, and it's, all things are possible, right? So I hope, and I... I just want to acknowledge our brother, Pastor Calvin Brown, who was our retreat speaker back in 2012. He's here with his mother and his son, Maxwell. And I'm sorry that you guys are from Ohio. And we did what we did to you. But we're all really happy. And so, you know, let us be happy. Thank you. Let us be happy. Well, let let me just tell you, I, I almost feel like I don't need to preach on prayer, but I'm going to anyway. And we've got two messages left in this series I really hope that over the course of this series, you have sensed God pulling at you. I've been praying for this since the start of the series. What I would really not like is if this series made you go, hmm, that's interesting. I understand a little bit more about prayer, and that's where it ends. That would be a tragedy to me. Because prayer is not something to understand. It's ultimately something that, that connects us to God. It's something we do. So I hope you've sensed that God is saying, hey, Don't just learn about prayer. In whatever way you know how, talk to me, listen to me. I want to actually have a relationship, a conversation with you. This morning's message is called Only by Prayer. And the subtitle to Wet Your Appetite is The Key to Power Over Spiritual Bondage. Now, I know that sounds a little um, on the edge for some of you who are suburban, upper-middle-class suburbanites, and, uh, you know, you, you're evangelicals. We don't handle rattlesnakes. We don't talk about power encounters and all that, but the reality of spiritual bondage is everywhere. What you call um, one thing, a bad personality, an ornery, cranky disposition, just a jerk of a person, very often is somebody who is completely in spiritual bondage. And so I want to talk about something that Jesus revealed to us as the key to overcoming spiritual bondage. And it comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. I'm I'm just going to read the passage through once, and then we'll dive right in. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. And has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, 
the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples, of course, asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This passage this morning finds Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, coming down from a mountain, most likely Mount Hermon, where they had together experienced something that we have come to know as the transfiguration. That's a big fancy word to just say Jesus was changed radically in his appearance. Um, He was radiant, as bright as the sun, and Moses and Elijah appeared in spirit with them, possibly in bodily form. And it was as if God was saying, you guys think this guy, Jesus, is a good teacher, your rabbi, but let me peel back the skin a little bit and show you what's underneath. Imagine a being of light wrapped in flesh, and just for a moment, remember like in, in that show V where they're like, hey, let me show you something, and they peel back the skin and you see snake skin, you're like, what? Or the Terminator, you peel back the skin, you see machinery. It's like that. God said, let me show you who this really is, who you're dealing with. And he peels back the surface, and Jesus is exposed, revealed in his radiance. And Peter, James, and John, and think about this. They thought, our, our, our master Jesus is a great dude. But man, Moses and Elijah are here. That's like you thinking, I might be an okay basketball player. We'll hang out with LeBron and Kobe. And they look at me, and they're like, dude, you are the best. And they're shocked, because Moses and Elijah are showing deference to Jesus. And they come down from this mountain going, Dudes, we have totally misunderstood our master. <laughs> we thought we, he, he was great. He is the greatest of all time. And so they're coming down from this amazing spiritual awakening, uh, an experience of what we call a spiritual high. Have you ever had one of those? Where God seems so close to you, where you experience something that It's frustrating when you try to go home and explain to others. It doesn't do justice. Words are not enough to say, you don't know what I felt out there. I saw something. It was indescribable. I think that's the best word I can use use to describe these moments with God. They're indescribable because even as you try to explain it, no one else can fully understand what you're saying. They had such a moment, but then they come down from the mountain, and what do they see? They see a large crowd gathered ahead. And you know how sometimes you can tell if it's a happy crowd or if it's not a happy crowd? And they're like, uh-uh, that's, there's a disturbance in the force ahead. And as they're approaching, they could hear the words of arguing, shouts being thrown back and forth. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was me, I would have turned right around. I'm like, nope, I'm not going to let them steal my peace. I just had the most incredible experience in my life. Isn't it always the case that when you come back from a spiritual high, you return to a regular life filled with chaos and crowding? I don't know how often that's happened to me. I come back from an amazing experience, and I return to just utter chaos. I avoid looking at email for a week, and I open my inbox, and it's like opening a dirty diaper. Just whoosh. What happened? I left for a week. What happened in my life? What happened in my world back home? You come back and all of a sudden your spouse wants to pick a fight. Your kid is acting like a jerk. Your bank account, someone stole your identity. And you're like, what is going on? So often after a high, we return to just utter chaos. And if it had been me, I would have turned right around and be like, no way am I dealing with that now. I got to let this just ride out a little longer. But Jesus, to his credit, walks right into the fray, and he says, hey, what y'all arguing about? Jesus engages these people. 
And a man in the crowd speaks up. Clearly not the man at the center of everything, but he's the first guy to speak. He says, hey, Jesus, finally you're back. I came here looking for you. I've got the son who's in really bad shape. And I really thought that maybe from the rumors I've been hearing, you could do something for him. So I brought him to you because I'm desperate. And when I saw that you were not here, I asked your B team. I mean, I said, hey, is Jesus? No. How about his inner circle, his top three all-stars, the starters? No, they went with Jesus. Who are y'all? We're the bench. We're the B team. You, you guys know him, though, right? You hang with them. Can you help me? And I asked these guys, can they help me? And they tried, but very publicly and very de- definitively, they failed. My son is in exactly the same shape as when I brought him. And so this man says, that's what this argument is all about. Now, you've got to notice that this boy is in pretty bad shape. He's possessed by a demon. And I, I, you know, I've traveled enough now to weird places to have witnessed firsthand what demon possession actually looks like. But it's not a commonplace occurrence in maybe our evangelical world. Well, maybe it is. You just don't know how to recognize it. But before you dismiss this story as being totally irrelevant to your life, let me point out a few things about this boy's condition. Now, we know from a little later on when Jesus rebukes the servant, uh, the, the demon, that he calls the demon a deaf and mute demon, meaning not that the demon was mute, otherwise how could he hear the rebuke, but that this demon was one who created deafness and muteness. And that's one of the first things we notice is that this boy was robbed of speech. He couldn't talk. And imagine the frustration of not being able to talk, not being able to express to the world everything you're experiencing inside. Have you ever known someone in that situation? Have you ever been there yourself where you are experiencing and feeling some very powerful things, but every time you try to use human language to describe it, everyone around you is like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Or maybe it's a shutdown where the person says, I'm not going to tell anybody anything. I'm going to bottle it all up. I want so badly for someone to know, but I'm too afraid. I'm too bound up to ever let anyone in. So I'm going to just be mute. I'm not going to speak. You're going to try to coax it out of me, and I'm not going there with you. It also says there's a spirit of deafness, meaning, have you ever known a person? Have you ever been in that situation where people who love you are really trying to speak into your life? They're trying to say stuff to you, things for your own good. They're saying, look, what you're thinking, how you're behaving, it's not good for anybody, and it's destroying you. You have to stop. And you can hear them at one level, but something in your spirit says, no, I'm not here. I'm not going to hear that. I refuse to let you in. That's a kind of spiritual bondage. You may not think of it as demon possession, but spiritual bondage is real, and one of the manifestations is some people, no matter how much you lovingly or even angrily speak the truth, they are not having any of it. They have lost the ability to hear the truth. They have so hardened themselves, they're so oppressed by a spirit, they can't let the truth in. They just go, no, don't try your tricks with me. We've been there before. I'm not hearing it. It says that he gnashed his teeth. He foamed at the mouth. That's torment. It's a sign of someone who can no longer verbalize what they're feeling. They are just now writhing. It's just the tortured soul. A person who is just about to explode with undefined emotion because they feel everything like a person without skin on. And they can't verbalize it anymore. This is just now a soul completely getting a beat down from somebody. And they're groaning inside. They're moaning. It's beyond words. It also says that this spirit has tried to throw my boy into fire or water. It's constantly trying to get him to hurt himself, even to kill himself. That's another manifestation of spiritual bondage, is that the enemy hates us. And if we can get, if we can, he can get us to do his work for him all the much better. You see some people you love, trapped in a cycle of self-destructive behavior. They are literally killing themselves at every opportunity, and no matter what you say, no matter how much you plead, they will not change. They are stuck. Now, that's not 
If I ended there, what a depressing sermon. But I'm saying it because maybe you don't know anybody who's possessed by a demon, spitting out green pea soup, head is turning. Maybe you don't know like the exorcist kind of demon possession, but have you ever had someone you love in your life who appears beyond the point of words and persuasion and logic? They are stuck in a place of spiritual bondage. They can't break free. No matter how well you speak the truth, they're stuck. They just won't go there. I think there are a lot of people we care about who are in that place. And when we live with them, their brokenness and their bondage spills over out of their lives into ours, and it causes a great deal of pain. We suffer along with them. Ask anybody who's had chronic pain how much of a toll it takes on their family members. When you have long-term illness, it takes a toll on your family members. And when you are in spiritual bondage, it will not just affect you. It will affect everyone around you. You can walk into a house where there's spiritual bondage and immediately feel it. There is this darkness, this anger, this bitterness hanging heavy over this place. They may have cleaned up the house. They may have put on a friendly smile. But the spirit that lives here is a spirit of anger, coldness, darkness, hopelessness. And when we see something like that and we cry out for them, we want them to be free, to be better, and yet everything we've tried and everything they've tried has come to nothing. And after a while, you say, what, is, what do I do? How do I, get, how do I move forward? How do I get out of this? How do I get them out of this? And when everything they tried to fail, the, the disciples, in shame of their public failure, pulled Jesus aside, they said, hey, Jesus, seriously, What happened? Why couldn't we do anything about this? And he gives them this profound answer. This kind can only come out by prayer. Now listen. Jesus is not saying just close your eyes and say the words. He's not, because I absolutely believe they were praying. They were going through the motions of what we would call prayer, but there was something about their prayer that was missing. The phrase that he might have said today is, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, you're doing it, but you're doing it wrong. It's not like you could just close your eyes and just babble anything you want to God and be heard. There's something about the way we pray that seems to matter profoundly to the listening heart of God. That some of our prayers, though honest, push God away from us rather than draw him near to us. What is it about the prayer that God welcomes when we're at that the face of a brokenness so deep, we truly believe there's nothing I can do. I can't change this person. They can't change themselves. What kind of prayer must I pray? I want you to notice a couple things out of this passage. There's probably more. But notice a couple things. One is that Jesus prays this prayer fueled by love. Everything Jesus does from this point on is driven by a real love for the people in this situation. Even though his disciples and some high-ranking religious leaders are in that situation, I love that when this man, an anonymous public stranger, speaks up, Jesus acknowledges him. He lets him finish his words, and he begins to deal directly with him. And there's two little phrases in this passage that if you read too quickly, you'll miss them, but I think tip Jesus' hand reveals to us just what kind of person Jesus is. I don't know what the the disciples and these religious teachers were arguing about, but as a religious leader myself, I would guess that they were either arguing over the, the theology of exorcism or they were arguing over the validity of Jesus' authority, saying, well, the reason you guys couldn't cast it out is your, your master, this rabbi of yours, is a fake. He's a quack. He has no power from God. He's not sent of God. That's why you couldn't do it. Or he might have even said, Something like, there's no such thing as demons, or human beings can't cast out demons. They were probably arguing, and as a spiritual leader, I enjoy diving into arguments like that. How many of you love a good debate? Like when it's going on, you just go, ooh, yes, yeah. I Thank you, Maché. Maché loves a good debate. Some of us like diving in. But you know, in the midst of this whole theological debate that was going on, Do you know who most easily could have been lost in the shuffle? 
this little boy whose suffering, whose personal tragedy catalyzed the whole thing to begin with. I've seen this happen again and again in churches where somebody is going through a hard time and the conversation goes to this weird place where the person at the center of it all whose personal tragedy, whose real pain is just completely overlooked and it's used as a catalyst for some other issue. They're used as an object lesson, a teaching moment. I love that Jesus didn't do that, that he didn't just reduce this boy to a theological issue or a teaching or object lesson, but he says to him, hey, all of you shut up for a second. Bring this boy to me. I got to see him because he's not an issue. He's a person in torment and his life is in real danger. Sex trafficking, human trafficking is not an issue. It's real people whose lives are being completely destroyed. And so many people working in that see it. They're driven not by the numbers or the, the trends in society, but by the faces of kids they've met who are liberated after being in bondage. I love that that's the heart of Jesus. That he says, hey, everybody stop debating. What are you doing? This little boy needs help. And he says to them, bring him to me. Bring this boy to me. And as soon as they bring the boy, as if the demon is wanting to validate the father's claims, the demon throws this boy into a convulsion. And seeing this pitiful condition, the father had described that now Jesus is watching this boy shaking and writhing on the ground, gnashing, foaming, turning rigid. And he says to his father this really interesting question, which I in a way, surprised me. He says, how long has he been like this? Now, Jesus is not a medical doctor. He's not trying to take a a medical issue. What he's saying is, how long have you lived with this? This is hard to watch. If this were my little boy, I think I would be dying inside. How long have you dealt with this? How long has your little boy had to live his life in this condition? See, I think a lot of Spiritual leaders, if they had power and walked into a situation like this, they would attempt to do something like this. Oh, he's shaking. All right, everybody stand back. Check this out. Huzzah! And the boy would just get up and be like, see? Huh? Told you. That's right. I'm sent from God, y'all. I think there would have been a temptation among some spiritual leaders to see this as a perfect setup. Just a, a floater pitch. Just bam, let's knock this out of here. Instead, Jesus says, before I go and perform the magic trick, I want to acknowledge the humanity of this situation. How long has this little boy been tormented like this? How long have you as his father had to watch him suffer in helplessness? And he says, from childhood, Lord. Now, he's a boy, and he says from childhood. It's not like yesterday. What he means is, for as long as I can remember. Since he was a wee little boy, an infant, it's been like this almost his whole life. Have you known somebody who could trace their brokenness, their bondage back to as far back as they remember? And they say to you, I've just been like this since I was born into my family. It's been like this ever since I was young. I don't have power over this thing in my heart. I've had this dark passenger sitting next to me for as long as I can recall. Now listen, in this situation, there were two people suffering from this affliction. Both the father and the son were bearing a terrible weight. They were both suffering. But what I love about Jesus is that he makes the boy's suffering primary and the father's suffering secondary. He says, your boy is smoking. You got secondhand smoke. It's pretty bad, but your boy is really struggling. And the way I'm going to deal with your pain, your sort of overflow pain, is I'm going to go to the source and I'm going to take care of your boy's suffering. When his suffering stops, your suffering will also stop. Do you understand that principle? Because some of us, the person we're living with, the person we love, has caused so much pain and so much frustration, we're really at this point of, I'm done with this. You smell bad and I can't smell you anymore. I'm so hopeless in this relationship. 
And yes, your struggle is very real. I just saw a woman in Target this morning. Her t-shirt said, the struggle is real. And she had one baby in this arm, two babies in the shopping cart. I'm like, sister, your struggle is real. Let me help you. I know for you, if you're living with someone who is in bondage, your pain, your frustration, your hopelessness is very real, and it hurts you. I know that. But the person at the center of it is the one in real torment. That's the person that Jesus loves and wants to set free, to deliver. And if we lose sight of that, we'll be so absorbed in our own pain, we won't realize how much God wants to use us to free our loved one from their pain. I've been reading a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And listen to what he writes. Okay? There's some relevance to what I'm saying. There's some stuff that goes off in a tangent, but listen to this. Seldom do we pray seriously and thoughtfully for those we love as they deal with their besetting sins. I'm going to pick on husbands for a minute. This is not me. This is Paul Miller. Be mad at him. I'm going to pick on husbands for a minute because most men don't pray thoughtfully for their wives. They just whine or withdraw. When they do pray, they often simply want their own lives to be pain-free. Men will work at making money, keeping the yard neat, or helping the kids in sports. But many don't work at or think about things that last. You can already tell it's a little unfair. I mean, take it easy, Paul. There's some good guys out there. But just listen. Whether it's male or female, listen to the principle. For example, a husband will rarely ask God for his wife to become more like Jesus. Let's say she is critical of him when he tries to talk to her about it. She says, I wouldn't be so critical of you if you didn't have so many problems. Some of you are like, ooh, a little close to home. By raising the issue, he just got more criticism, so his heart quietly shuts down. He just doesn't care anymore. She is who she is. So he moves on with his life, and flips on the television, and without realizing it, he has become cynical about the possibility of real change in his wife. Do you see what happens there, what Paul Miller is describing? Is that when someone else, that wife who is just constantly critical and picking, that is not who God made her to be. That is not her at her best, filled with the Holy Spirit, driven by the love of Jesus. That is someone who is spiritually sick. Something is off. You're not supposed to be constantly nitpicking, criticizing, accusing, mistrusting. That is not who God made us to be, but that is somebody who is in the grips of something that she cannot change. It is the habit of her soul to always be like this, negative, whatever it is. And the husband is affected. It's not to say he's faultless, but he's deeply affected by that. And the husband who is pecked at all the time says, I hate this. The right remedy is to dive in and pray with love for this woman because the reason she is affecting you like that is that she is not as much like Jesus as Jesus would like her to be. That's the bottom line. If you flip it around, let's flip it around. Sometimes it's the man who's a complete mess and the woman's like, Lord, give me a new husband. I should have married Roger. I, my mama told me I should have married Roger. And you're looking at this guy and you go, ah. Oh. If there were an Omega 13 for real and I could turn back the clock and go back in time, just do over, I would. If there was a control Z, just one control Z in life, I'd use it on you. The temptation in that pain is to make it all about the pain you're feeling and forget that this person is nowhere near who they're supposed to be. They are in bondage, and they cannot change themselves. And so Jesus is teaching us through his example, if you don't like the way someone's affecting you, don't check out, don't complain, dive in and pray with love. That person's pain is becoming your pain, but that pain is still theirs. It's got to get dealt with. Now, how do I know? It's because, to be fair, most of us, when we are being affected like that, we do pray. But we say often, and I hear this a lot, Pastor, don't tell me to pray. I've been praying and praying. It doesn't work. They don't change. In fact, they're getting worse. <laughs> Have you ever had that? You pray two years and they get worse? You're like, oh, Lord, what's, what's up? 
Here's how you know when you're praying in God's love or when you're praying in human love. God's love never fails. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. God's love never gives up. It never loses faith. Is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. The way you know that you're praying not with human love but with God's love is that the longer you pray, the more you go, the longer you're able to persevere. That instead of saying, you know what, this is the three-year mark, you are not changing, you are, you are irreparably broken, you suck, I, I, I hate you, we're done. Before you get to that point, the love of God will say to you, hang on, keep going. The more you pray for a person in God's love, the more your love for them grows. Not your hopelessness, not your irritation, but your love grows. And if you don't have that kind of love as you pray, that's your first real prayer request. Your biggest problem is not that your wife or husband or friend or sister or brother or mother is a jerk. Your biggest issue is that that jerk has revealed to you that you lack the love of God in your heart. That you've loved people with human love, and human love fails. It gives out. It runs out. And sometimes God will put in your life an unlovable person to expose to you that you only love with human love when God is calling you to love with the love he deposits in your heart. So if you find that the more you pray for someone who's stuck, the more you start to hate them, Change your prayer. Stop praying for their problems. Stop praying for your own heart. God, give me the love of Jesus because I think I've stopped caring about whether they're free. I just want to be free. Let me move on before I take up the whole morning here. If you also watch Jesus, you learn that the prayer he's talking about is not just going through the motions. It's a prayer fueled not just by love, but by faith. If you're getting a little tired... Press through with me is the last point, okay? Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And now as the father responds, how many of you know that when you live with somebody who's stuck like this for a long time and you pray and nothing changes, it starts to wear away at your faith a little, doesn't it? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have been hoping, praying, accommodating, doing whatever for years, years. And this person you love continues to hurt you, to disappoint you, to betray you. And you're thinking, what can I possibly do at this point? I'm done. I'm so tired. You hear it in this father's voice as he says, (laughs) how long? You're the first one who asked me that. How long is it? It's been forever. Dude, it's been since his infancy. I can't remember a day. One, I didn't have to be like, I can't fully be at work because I got this stupid demon is going to throw my boy into a fire. Can you imagine how many times you plucked that kid out of a campfire, out of a river? You can't turn your back for one second when he's taking a bath. Think about how tiring that is. And it's become so prevalent, so permanent feeling in his life, he's getting ready to accept the unacceptable. He's getting ready to go, you know what, maybe it is what it is. I've told you before from this pulpit, that is one of my least favorite phrases. It is what it is. That's like the ultimate American statement of hopelessness and Christlessness. It is what it is. Jesus is like, "Mm -hmm, what am I, chopped liver? It is what I say it is. What do you mean it is what it is? Yes, that's true. It is what it is. And if God is absent, that's the end of the story. And he says, Lord, man, thank you for asking me that. The truth is, I'm so dang tired. And he says, you can hear it in his voice. He goes, look, you see it. I'm living with it since he was a baby. If you can do anything at all to help us, go for it, man. Just please help us if you can. He's got enough faith to say, I need help. But he doesn't have enough faith to actually believe help is coming. Do you get that? It's like the person who does the trust fall halfway and then does that. So offensive when you're the one catching them, right? Dude, just fall. I'm right here. He's got enough faith to start the fall. He doesn't have enough faith to go all the way. Halfway down, he's pretty sure, nope, there's another one. I wanted something to happen, but nothing's going to happen. 
And Jesus seizes on those words, if you can. I don't know if he said it sarcastically. If I were Jesus, I'd say it sarcastic. If you can. If you can. Like, I'm nothing. But I think he said, what do you mean, if you can? Who do you believe you're talking to right now? And never mind me. You, you may not know me yet. But do you know the God of Israel? The God who saves. Do you believe truly that there is no God resident in the universe who can help you or cares about you? And then he says something that many people have taken out of context, misinterpreted, misused. He says this really dangerous but powerful phrase, everything is possible for the one who believes. When I was a little kid and I heard phrases like this, and I, I grew up in the age of Star Wars, as a little kid, theologically confused, I couldn't tell the difference between faith and the force. I used to really believe that if I believed earnestly enough, I could actually make stuff move. When I was a kid, I was convinced utterly that I had telekinesis, if I just could awaken it in me. And that's the way I understood verses like this. Everything is possible for him who believes, meaning if you really believe, there's nothing you can't do. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant at all. What he said is for the person who has real biblical faith, they see a God for whom nothing is impossible. When I pray to God with real faith, what I'm praying, who I'm praying to is someone for whom his ability is never an issue. It's never called into doubt. When God doesn't respond, it's not ever because he can't. Do you get that? And the demonstration of Jesus' love that just passed shows us also it's never because he doesn't care either. Why is that the first place we tend to go when we're frustrated and God doesn't answer prayers? Either A, he doesn't love me enough to do anything, or he's just not powerful enough to do anything. Again and again and again in Scripture, God goes out of his way to establish that those two statements are lies. That always God loves us and always God is able. Those two truths about God are what make him God. And apart from that, you actually live in a universe without a God. If God does not love us and if God is not able, there is no God worth worshiping. Now, I know that your circumstances and a long history of frustration can lead you to feel or believe those things, but let me just simply tell you, that's what faith says. That's what faith does. It says, that cannot be true. So if those things are not true, then what is true of this situation? When the disciples pull him aside, in Matthew 17, he doesn't pull his punches. Mark is a little more gracious. He's like, well, this kind only comes out by prayer. But Matthew being a little more um, straightforward, blunt. He records what Jesus also said. He says, because y'all just, your faith is so puny. I know you really want to be powerful men, to be men of the kingdom. I know you know that your God is powerful, but your, your view of me, your faith in me is still too small. And do you notice that Peter, James, and John are like, yeah, y'all, if you were up on that mountain, you <laughs> You would have cast that demon out right quick because you would know who we follow. Notice that it's the guys who weren't at the transfiguration whose faith was too small. Because faith doesn't come from experience. Faith doesn't come from being called into some authority. Faith comes from seeing the God for whom all things are possible. You know, Mark 3.15 says, Jesus authorized them very explicitly. Go out now. I authorize you to have power over demons. Mark 6.13 tells us they went and they were casting out demons left and right. They were like, this is unbelievable. You demon, be gone. Demon, be gone. And everywhere they went, demons were parting like the Red Sea. And they were just like, dude, be careful. I might point at you and cast out a demon on accident. I I might cough and the demon will come out. They thought they were powerful. And he says, look, I know that you're authorized and I know you have experience. But know this, faith does not come from any of that stuff. Faith is the direct product of seeing a God for whom nothing is impossible. That's what faith is. And if that's what you're losing, you're losing more than your hope in this situation. You're losing your connection to the one God who loves you most, who wants to free you and restore you and work in your life. And so you need to cry out to that God 
I love what this father does. He goes, wow, that's what faith is, is that everything is possible for the one who believes. He says this, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's such a weird statement. We're so familiar in the church with that phrase, but it's one of the most brutally honest statements in the Bible. What he's saying is, oh, I want that to be true. I'm not there, but I want to be. Help me get there. I don't want to live like this. And I sure as heck don't want to live in a universe where there is no God who loves us and is able. I don't, I'm tempted to go there because I'm so wounded and tired, but I don't want to go there. I don't want to live in that universe. And yet I don't think I have enough faith in you to make it through this. Help me because my unbelief is winning over my belief. Right now, if you ask me honestly, I have more unbelief than belief. The prayer of faith is a prayer that says God's ability and his power are never in question. So we ask in total dependence, then I will keep knocking at this door until something happens. You are able, you love me, and I still got a good 50 years left in this life. I will keep going. It's especially relevant, and I feel especially justified saying that today. You know, some of us have been praying for the same issue for five years, and I say to you, the city of Chicago waited 108 years Believing with unwavering faith, at least some of the fans, that as sure as God made green apples, someday the Cubbies are going to win the World Series. A city waits collectively for over a century for a baseball team to win a tournament. And when they do, the city collectively loses its stinking mind and goes apoplectic. And I think, wow, an unbelieving world can have faith in a baseball team. Shouldn't we also have at least that much patience, that much faith in a God who comes through? Some of us have been praying for five years, and God says, what, you're dying tomorrow? You might live another 50 years. What are you, what are you scared about? Keep going. I will come meet you, but your faith needs to grow. I truly believe that God sends difficulties our way not to punish us or to wound us, but to grow our faith because faith doesn't grow without resistance. It never does. Without hardship, your faith would shrivel and die. I guarantee you of that. Without hardship, your faith would shrivel and die because without hardship, you would coast through life on your own power and be just fine. If you're living with somebody who every day makes your world a little darker, a little rougher, because they are trapped in a spiritual bondage they cannot break free from. If their pain and their lostness is causing you great pain and you're about to get lost, I encourage you with these words. Renew the love of God in your heart, and pray for them. Stop focusing on the pain they cause you and focus on the pain of them living the way they live every day. Far from God, stuck, tormented. Pray for them, and if you find you can't, beg God to deposit his love in your heart so that you can pray without giving up for this person. And if you've been praying forever it feels like, ever since as long as you can remember and nothing's changed, I say to you with boldness, don't give up. Keep praying. If he doesn't answer today, there's always tomorrow. If he doesn't answer this year, and all the Cubs fans said, there's always next year. For as long as it takes, For as long as it takes, don't give up on God. Don't give up on prayer. Because that thing that person's under, there is no other key, no other solution for what they're in. Only prayer and the power of God will set them free. 
So don't give up. Don't stop. If as you hear these words, you feel like you need a little help, that you can't get all the way to that place on your own, I want to ask you to do something important. Look up here and listen to me. I want to ask you something important because if you're about to give up and you feel like that's right where I am, I want you to come and talk to somebody who's in leadership at our church. A community group leader, a pastor, a staff member, just somebody you look up to that you respect and just say, look, I heard the message. I think that's where I want to get, but I'm just not there. Can you help me? And that person will, will stand with you. They will pray with you. They'll pray for you, and we will get there together. Amen? <clears throat> I want to ask you to bow with me. And I just want, before I lead us into a time of communion, I want you to think about, and maybe for some of you, you're the person. As you heard this message, you realize I'm the person in bondage. That's me. I'm stuck. Would you begin praying for your own heart and saying, God, I don't think I can change me. I've tried, Lord knows. I need you to change me. And if you're living with somebody, not physically necessarily, but in your life, there is a person who continues to make you feel wounded, alone, despairing, hopeless. If they're stuck and it's causing you pain, I want you to ask God to give you his love and his faith to not give up on this person to not stop praying. So just pause for a moment. Let the Lord kind of lead you to think about this, this person or think about your own heart. And I'm just going to give you a couple minutes in, in quiet to just pray. Just hand a place of music. Just listen for the Lord's voice. Speak to him honestly. Let's pray. together. Now some of us have prayed for years, broken-hearted, frustrated, hopeful, because we see someone in our lives who is so stuck inside that they cannot break free. Confess that we've tried everything we know to try, and yet no change really comes. We confess to you that we're starting to lose hope. We're tempted to give up, to bail out. But we hear your voice and we read your word, and we see your example.
And we ask you to help us not to give up, not to surrender. Lord, give us the kind of love you promised and you described in 1 Corinthians 13. It doesn't give up. It doesn't lose heart. It hopes always. It perseveres. We want that kind of love. We ask you to put it in our hearts for the person who torments us, who is themselves tormented. We also confess, Lord, that Our faith is waning when we don't see you. So reveal yourself to us. Show yourself. Help us to look at you and realize we're fools not to believe. You are greater than anything. You are bigger than what we're afraid of. And when you are ready, when it pleases you, when we have grown, we believe that you are able to bring freedom and deliverance. Lord, I pray for those who have heard this message and the whole time their hearts have just been in turmoil. They're really struggling, resisting, unable to receive these words. Holy Spirit, I ask that even in the hours and days to follow, you would continue to pursue them with words of hope and words of perseverance. We may resist for a moment, but you are the one who woos our hearts. Come and win the fight for us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.